That's not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I have with me a very good friend, Maya Stone, who is a bassoonist located in the Nashville area, but does a lot of freelancing outside. I've met her because she's played with the Alabama Symphony a few times, and uh, she's always a warm and welcome presence in the group, and slowly I've gotten to know her and some of the really interesting projects, like let alone the, quote, normal stuff that freelancers do. She also has some really interesting projects she's been a part of. And I thought it'd be really cool to get her perspective on what she thinks is important for freelancing, what she thinks is important just for being able to be sort of a well-rounded musician. And then, you know, there's plenty of other things that I think we can get into as well. But through the guise of a Freeway Philharmonic episode, we'll kind of branch out from there. So first of all, Maya, thank you so much for being willing to speak with me today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Um, I think a great place to start would be if you just want to talk about you, uh, what are some of the things that you're doing right now, uh, maybe even getting into some of your education to give us a little bit of a background. Let's just try to paint uh, an amount of a full picture uh, before we get too deep. Okay, sure. Um, so I have a um, an undergraduate degree in bassoon, um, actually, no, not bassoon performance, <laughs> in music education with performance certificates in uh, bassoon and clarinet. And I studied at um, the SUNY Potsdam, State University of New York and Potsdam um, at the Crane School of Music. And um, I had a great time there. Uh, my main teacher was Frank Wangler. And um, he was a woodwind specialist, so or is a woodwind specialist, I should say. So um, actually took both of my lessons weekly with him and <laughs> um, played in multiple ensembles and bo- on both bassoon and clarinet and, um, and focused mainly on music education um, while, you know, still focusing on my performing. Um, I did my master's at Michigan State University, um, where my main teacher was Barry Steeds. Um, on bassoon and I also so I did a bassoon performance masters and I also did a woodwind specialty um, masters so um, so it was very nice to do that I felt like um, I could combine uh, the my pedagogy perspectives from each of the woodwind instruments that I was studying and I felt more informed you know um, also had opportunities to play in regional orchestras during that time and um, teach a little bit um, through a graduate assistantship. So I was teaching um, bassoon methods. And um, uh, yeah, had a great experience there. And then um, right after that, I went on to teach actually um, as a full-time professor um, at a few different institutions. Um, First, I was at um, Austin P State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. And I actually taught there for only one semester, and it was uh, bassoon and oboe mainly. And then, of course, you know, a lot of times um, you'll teach additional courses as well. Right, so right. I was teaching um, music appreciation, you know, in addition to other courses related to woodwinds. Um, so 
uh, I was again, I was only there for one semester and then um, went on to Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and um, mainly bassoon there. And I taught a little bit of clarinet while I was there. And in addition to music appreciation and, um, you know, woodland methods and et et cetera, et cetera, um, fundamentals of music. And, um, and I was there from uh, 2004 to 2011. And, um, you know, all, all of my experiences in music have been good and informative and um, part of my growth and learning experience. So, you know, all of these things were, were good um, in, in different ways. Uh, and, you know, maybe traumatic in some others, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, overall, we can you know, grow. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, in 2008, I, um, ended up going on to, you uni- uh, University of Texas at Austin. I took a year leave from my position at MTSU and, um, did a, um, doctorate in bassoon performance. Um, and I kind of mashed it all in into two years, um, which, you know, uh, one of my colleagues said afterwards, no, oh, now that you've done it, you can, t- you know, tell other people they can do it. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, like, <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? Yeah, right. Um, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> it's very stressful. And, but um, I studied with Kristen Wolf Jensen there and I learned so much. And um, she's really pivotal. Uh, she was really pivotal in my, in my growth moving forward. Um, I also feel like my... Um, activity as far as being a, you know, teaching, you know, actively. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that arena was really cool to, to um, you know, go back to school after having done that, because then it was like, I was like flipped on the other side, you know, of, yeah, yeah. of perspective that I had been in for several years. And um, that I thought was one of the coolest things, because um, I could, and you know, it was funny because I actually was like, wow, I have so much time, but I have like, cr- you know, crammed all this um, degree into this short period of time. But I still felt like I had a ton of, you know, I had so much more time than I would have normally had if I was teaching. You right, know? right. And also a bit of the pressure off from teaching. So it was like, it felt, it didn't feel as, um, it was stressful, but it didn't feel as in tense, like densely packed as it was, as it actually was. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was really, really interesting. <laughs> and, um, I also, at that time I was comfortable with just, just focusing on school. And I knew, you know, I was going in with a plan. Like I had a, a limited amount of time that I, that I needed, you know, to do it in. So, um, so like, you know, for a long, long time, like I did not watch any TV. Like I didn't even have a TV, you know, like nice. I didn't do, you know, like anything outside basically of, of school, you know, it was like went to school, brought my lunch, um, went to the practice room, you know, studied afterwards and, you know, went to bed and got up and, you know what I mean? It was yeah, just yeah. like, and, um, and that was cool. You know, that's like, that's kind of, to me, like, the way it should be if you can if you can manage that you know what i mean and um i totally I was, agree yeah yeah I, I think it's 
I think, I mean, I didn't do it that way, you know, because I was a kid, <laughs> right? I was a kid. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If I, it's a similar thing. Like if I were to go to back to school now, not only mm-hmm. would I appreciate the fact that I'm in a space where learning is the thing that I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have right. to, I don't have to find an, like an, 30 minutes or an hour in my day to read this book, you know? It's right. like, that's what yeah. my whole life is about right now. Right. And then right. beyond that, it's like, you know, it's for a finite amount of time. And so you can right. think to yourself, oh, I'll just dive in super hard for this finite amount of time and get as much right. as I can out of it. Yeah, I totally agree that if if you can manage it, you could get a lot yeah. out of it. Yeah, you can. For real. And um, and it's important to make connections, too. And there's different ways that you can do that. You know, you can um, you join study groups and stuff like that, of course playing and chamber music and orchestra, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, and bands, you know, those are ways to, to add to that as well. Um, but yeah, I'm like, you know, no, I was, I mean, it wasn't like we weren't working, right. You know, like before, but it's just the, 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 um, the primary focus, like what is like optimally the most important for, you know, for, for me, it was, it was different. It was good to have that. Yeah. perspective. <laughs> well, you were just, yeah, you were just coming back at a different time in your life, right? Yeah. You weren't, yeah, yeah, I think that's just the biggest difference is when we we're younger, we don't, I mean, I didn't appreciate it at all. I just was like, this is the thing you're supposed to do next. Like, I wasn't right. thinking, I want to go get this education. It was like, well, yeah. this is the, the path that you have to go on. So I wasn't, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you come back to it later, I think you're making this conscious choice. I was going to ask you about this. You're making this conscious choice to go, to leave the working world and go back to the world of education. So you have a Mm -hmm. specific reason. And I know a doctorate is a little bit different. We, this is like sort of a post, like you can do this later in, in your life, but what is it, what was it like to leave? I know you said maybe like time wise, it actually was, you know, weirdly less busy, but what was it like as a person to go from I'm working, I'm doing the thing that I was supposed to do to mm-hmm. I'm back to being a student again? Like, was there any struggle with that within yourself or was it just like, this is a, a no brainer, I'm good with it? Um, you know, what what I remember is that it wasn't, I think the it wasn't necessarily a struggle in terms of, you know, going back to being a learner. But but as far as like making money, you know, (laughs) like like, um, that was that was hard, you know, like not to see a a steady paycheck coming in steady. Right. 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 Paycheck coming in. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But (laughs) um, yeah, it was um, for me, you know, I I was like, oh, man, you know, I'm I'm kind of back to being a poor student. You know, like that's kind of how I felt. And, um, and, you know, just trying to, you know, like try to live, I try to live frugally to some degree, you know, but, um, not as much as I should. Um, but, and, and in the past, you know, I, I didn't do as much as I should, but, um, but, you know, at, at this point it was like, listen, you listen, you only have this, you know, amount, like you have to be, you know, really smart about how you're spending and then you, you may not have, you know, such and such, you know what I mean? And so it's just, um, it, that to me was hard and, uh, not to have the the paycheck coming in. That's fair. Yeah. So (laughs) you finished up your doctorate and then Mm -hmm. how did life, where did life take you after that? 
Yeah, so I finished my doctorate in 2010, and um, and then in 2011, uh, I left MTSU, and um, and that was that was hard, and um, and it was kind of at that moment I was like, what what am I gonna do? And um, this is part of where I felt like God was like reassuring me uh, like all along the way and my faith was really important you know because there were times in my career where I was like you know I'm done you know I'm sure this happens with everybody (laughs) but it was kind of like you know I'm I'm not supposed to be doing this Uh, you know I'm clearly not good enough or whatever I don't you know fit here or you know it's like i like I should just give up and do something else. And, um, and, you know, and then something would happen and it would be like God telling me like, Nope, you're supposed to be doing this. You know what I mean? Like this is where you're supposed to be for whatever amount of time and for whatever reason, you know, whatever. Um, but it was just, it was just always very clear. Nope. This is where you're supposed to be. And, um, and for me, like I needed that in order to push forward, you know, and to continue on. So, um, yeah, so there was an opportunity, um, to, uh, take a one-year position, a visiting position at Bowling Green State University, um, after, um, the position was posted and I applied and, um, went out and interviewed and it was very late and a lot of my jobs had started very late, you know, it was kind of like, um, you know, I went for an interview, but it was like, like in the summertime and, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, yeah. and then, um, they've, they've, uh, you know, offered me the job like in, you know, June or July or August. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I went out there and interviewed and auditioned and, and they offered me the position. And so I, I headed out there, um, and that was 2011. Yeah. Um, I headed out there and taught there for a year and it was, you know, similar in some ways to the, to the other positions that I was in, uh, except no music appreciation. Yeah. So, uh, there were some things uh, that, that happened out there. I felt like, um, you know, I enjoyed my teaching experiences a lot. Um, uh, there, there was one student in particular who, um, who grew like tremendously during that time. And, um, you know, no, no bassoons had, had made it to the final round of the, of the competition, you know, that they had, um, yearly for, for concerto and, and, um, and she made it as a sophomore and, you know, it just felt like she was really, really, really in it, uh, to win it. And, um, and she, she was very receptive, you know, to my teaching at the time. And, um, and so, you know, that I felt like, you know, sometimes it's like, why, why are you, why has this happened at this time? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, like, I hope that I have touched, you know, the other students as well. And I enjoyed working with them as well. Um, but sometimes I feel like it's one particular student that I'm supposed to kind of get to the next, you mm. know, level. Um, and or their next level. And then also, um, I had joined a commission for um, a consortium for a commission by Michael Gordon, um, like the year before I went out there. And um, it was 
started by a um, colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine, Dana Jessen. And um, she's a really fantastic contemporary bassoonist. And she's kind of like in her own zone. Um, but she's she's really fantastic. And um, like, I like it's weird for me to call her contemporary because like what she does is so like, you know, out of out of the box. But um, but she put together this consortium and um, and when she started it, it sounded great. And it was going to be like seven bassoonists and they're going to play this piece, you know, this long piece by Michael Gordon. And um, you could have anybody join. And um, and then as time went on, it became this um, this piece that was oh I'm sorry originally it was going to be um, like you could do either seven live bassoonists or you could do it with recorded sound so you mm. could do like one bassoonist and then have like okay, I see. you know recorded um, um, sound afterwards or recorded parts and play with that and um, I feel like I'm rambling I'm hoping I'm not rambling but it's all good <laughs> this is what a podcast is it's fine right <laughs> but uh, so um that was happening. And then, you know, I had gone on to Bowling Green and um, Dana ended up um, performing in Ann Arbor. She was coming to Ann Arbor to do a performance with her husband. And it was like some project that they had been working on with computers. And I was like, that sounds amazing. And I really wanted to go that night, but I was Ryan, I was exhausted and my head hurt. You know, I'd had the, like the longest day and I had actually watched a friend's, um, a former colleague's clarinet masterclass from um, at at, uh, at Bowling Green. She had come to Bowling Green that night, and so I had attended her masterclass. And I was just so tired, but I was like, something was like, we need to go, you know, <laughs> I need to go to Dana's performance. And um, and so I drove out to Ann Arbor, and um, and her performance was absolutely off the charts. It was mm. just amazing and it was like mind-blowing and um and you know I was just so glad that I had gone out there you know I can't say that I do that every time I'm really tired you know <laughs> like I don't just go but um but I was really glad that I went and um and afterwards we talked and she asked have you found somebody to do uh the Michael Gordon piece yet and you know I was like no you know I, I just got out here at Bowling Green and then trying to figure things out and see, you know, who would be interested. I just hadn't, you know, um, figured that out yet. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, um, I heard, you know, um, Dark in the Song is coming out, you know, to Bowling Green and, and, you know, and then she was like, um, well, if, you know, if I hear of anything, I'll let you know, you know, it was basically, and I was like, oh, okay, great, cool. Um, and, the other part of the story was that this group called Dark in the Song, which is a bassoon collective, um, was coming to play with uh, or, or at Bowling Green, and they're going to do a masterclass. And um, one of the uh, Chris Dietz, one of the composers there, had just won the tenure track job at Bowling Green, and he was like super on fire. And he was like, "Listen, I wrote this piece for Dark in the Song, and I want to bring them in." and and um, and having to do like a masterclass and, you know, and um, and he was like, would you support that? And I was like, at first I was like, uh, well, isn't like my job up for, you know, like for, for grabs at the end of this year? I was like, I don't know if I want to bring in like, you know, five badass bassoonists, you know what I mean? Yeah, and then yeah. I was like, you know what? You know, I was like, 
the the more the merrier. I was like, this will be really great for my studio and really great for the school. I was like, yeah, I support this. Let's bring them. And then, um, so he's getting that together. And then uh, um, Peter Kolke, who was who was part of the group, was gonna come. You know, he was he, he all of a sudden realized that um, he had a conflict. You know, he had had already had a conflict with the time that they decided. And he was like, well, why don't you ask Maya to do it? You know, he had come, when I was at MTSU, he had come and done a master class in a recital and um, we played briefly together. But for some reason, he had faith in me. <laughs> he was like, why don't you ask Maya to do it? And, um, and so Chris came to me with that and I was like, all right, you know, it's like, okay, how much time do we have to prepare? What's this, you know, music look like and stuff? But I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And um, so, um, I played with them and it, everything went really, really well. And, you know, at, I, I was really nervous and I, I was more concerned, you know, because <laughs> we had like one rehearsal, you know, but, um, but it went really well and they were happy, you know, so, um, so I, uh, so we went out to dinner, you know, that night and, um, and, it was like the night after the rehearsal or something like that. And um, they were like, I think um, Mike Carly was was talking to me and he was like, you know, he was just kind of asking me some questions about, you know, how's everything going here? And I heard you're in the consortium too. And he's like, well, we're looking for a seventh member, you know, of, of our, we're, we're going to be the premier group, you know, for the, for the Michael Gordon, it's going to be Dana and, and Dark in the Song and Jeff Lyman. And he was like, um, we are looking for a seventh uh, player. And I was like, really? Well, good luck, you know? Like, <laughs> I was like, I had, that was, you know, I had no idea that I would have even been on their radar, right. you know? And um, and then after, like a while later, I get an email from Dana and she's like, hey, you know, I heard things went well with Dark in the Song. And she's like, um, I just you know, wanted to let you know, it was basically like, this is what's happening with the, um, with the premier group in the future. You know, we're planning a, a tour of Northern Europe and, um, we're going to be recording, you know, in Troy, New York at the Experimental Media Performing Arts Center, which is like a really cool, you know, new venue, a newish venue. Um, that's, that's getting a lot of, you know, play. And, um, and, and so, I was like, oh, you know, and, and at the end, she's like, we would like to ask you to be our seventh member. And I think like I screamed and jumped, you know, when I read, the <laughs> when I read that, like I was so excited. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, to me, a lot of times and I, also I made really good friends, at, you know, at Bowling Green and stuff. And but just, you know, like so sometimes things are happen, you know, not just for the sake of, you know, not just for the sake of being, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was being an academic professor at the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't just about that, you know, it's like, there's so much other stuff that can happen, yeah. you know, and, um, so, so many opportunities that, um, if you, you can potentially take advantage of, you know, um, and it's just, and kind of like being at the right place at the right time and, you know, and, um, being prepared, you know, at that time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but you were just, and, you described that moment where you're like, I got, I should go to this concert. Like there's a level yes. of 
there's like a level of openness. There's a level of sort of I'm listening to my gut or God or the universe, right? Everybody talks about it a little. I would say God as well, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like God is telling me this is the right thing to do, and then you go do it, mm-hmm. and then amazing, you know. And it also what I love about that story is it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like that day everything. It's like it just was mm-hmm. one more piece in the puzzle that ultimately led you towards that. If yeah. I mean, you sort of have described it, but maybe to sort of to speak on it specifically, what do mm-hmm. you feel like uh, is the thing that o- the overarching thing in that story that? Maybe it's openness, right, or whatever, but like, what would you dissect from that story that you could apply other places or that you could sort of uh, encourage others in a way that they could experience something similar to what you experienced there? Does that question make sense? Yeah, and it's a good question. And sometimes I have a hard time like putting things together, <laughs> you sure, know, that yeah, yeah. completely. But, um, but I, and hopefully, you know, I'll say all the things that I'm that I need to say and want to say right now. But um, part of it was uh, part of it was, yeah, I, just like you said, being open, um, being open to other ex- experiences, new experiences, and um, and also um, I want to say at the time, you know, I was. I was like, okay, I'm here, you know, what do you need from me? You know what I mean? Like, um, and, you know, I was coming in as an outsider, you know, to that group. So it was like trying to make sure that I'm keeping perspective. And maybe that is a more broad, uh, broader way of looking at it. And, and what I would, I would say, hopefully, you know, is happening more often than not, is that I'm just taking everything in from different perspectives, you know, and uh, or tr- and also trying to just tr- trying to be aware of different perspectives, and that um, in the moment when something is happening, it's uh, it's bigger than me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, whether it's like extremely positive, extremely negative, uh, a little positive or a little negative or um, neutral, you know, like just taking it in and then being able to look at it, you know, like not just from, I want to say the ego, you know, mm-hmm. um, but also from you know, a, a point of, um, I, I want to say like, what is, what is, what is, what, what's happening right now mean in the universe or, you know, and, um, and how, how does it look for me to go forward in this moment? Um, so I would say that to some degree. Yeah. It sounds like um, sort of trying to get like you're saying, looking at it from different perspectives, but making sure that at yeah. minimum you're not approaching this from like your limited perspective, like trying to exactly. get a, a bigger picture, whatever that means. And whatever you're, that means. yeah. And I also think I would love for you to speak on this. I think an important part of that story was where you mentioned very briefly that they had said that, oh, we can bring this bassoon. 
group in and you're like, I don't know, I'm new. Like, I don't know. How, there's like an mm-hmm. element of fear based. Like I shouldn't yeah. do this because of fear, but ultimately you decided for the greater good and yeah. probably for you to be able to interact with them too, that that would be good. Yeah. And that ultimately led them to knowing, you know, like working with you and stuff like that. So yeah. I'd be curious what your thought process is between choosing things out of fear and choosing things out of the greater good or out of love. And like, what's the relationship between that and anything re- related to that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. It's great that you, I'm glad you caught that. And, um, that was important. That is an important part of the story for me. And that's part of the reason why I tell it, you know, because, um, at that moment, you know, I was, yeah, I was like, you know, it was like initial, like, you know, honest, you know, response, you know, I was like, Hmm, you know, <laughs> like, and I don't think I actually, I don't know if I said it to him or not, but I did. I, I was probably like, like isn't my job up you know (laughs) but um but it was kind of like flow of consciousness kind of thing you know it was you know it's like the initial reaction then I'm like working through that you know like the gears are turning absolutely and um and yeah you know to to me it was important you know like um I thought well I do want this job you know in the future (laughs) I didn't end up getting it which is totally fine but you know I was thinking that initially and then um and then I was like, yeah, you know what? This is going to be this this thing that that he's he's wants to happen and that he's super excited about, you know, like would be good for everybody. And like he's he's really passionate about it. So, you know, I mean, like and who doesn't want I mean, yeah, like it's it's a kind of a little bit of, of, of a threat. Right. Potentially. But like, who doesn't want like right. Six bassoonists in one professional bassoonists in one room, you know. <laughs> like, I mean, how often does that? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just That's funny. you know, how often does that happen? Right. Even, even in a you know orchestral piece, you know, it doesn't happen very often. I think I've seen it like once, you know, um, actually maybe a couple of years ago or something with Nashville Symphony performs, you know, a piece that had just been written recently. Sure. And, um, and they had like six bassoons on the stage and I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a smaller group. So it was really wind heavy. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like it doesn't happen very often. So, so yeah, I was like, no, this will be good. I was like, my, my students, need to be exposed to this kind of stuff and it's just happening like and you know i'm not having to bring them in you know they're you know chris is excited about this so you know my students are going to get the benefit reap the benefits of of you know being with these um with these uh pros and um and then they worked with the with the um contemporary uh i'm sorry they worked with the composers as well Mm -hmm. and um and so and i yeah i learned stuff too you know like this was great for me to be around them to learn from them and um and to just collaborate with them in general and you know of course the result of that was i get this amazing opportunity which is what you know when would i have had you know that happen it was just like the stars aligning and, you know, opportunity unfolding. So I, I definitely, yeah, felt like that, that was definitely part of the reason that I was at Bowling Green for sure. So then I I know you've done some like really cool and interesting projects and you're not like 
I mean, you obviously play in orchestras, regional orchestras, and you'll probably play like a church gig if you get hired for a church gig or whatever, you mm -hmm. know. But I also know you've yeah. done some really interesting projects, some of them not even bassoon related, you know. And yeah. <laughs> so how has has that moment affected the way you think about your freelancing career? Like, are you more willing to take weird or interesting opportunities because of your openness in this one moment in your life? Are you thinking, well, what would happen if I was that open more often? Or how, how does that no. manifest itself in your life? Yeah, that's great. I wish that I was always that open. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm probably, I probably miss the mark sometimes, you know? Um, and it's, and it's hard to, for, for me, if like something happens where your trust gets, um, severed, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, you know, struggling with that aspect too. It's like, okay, like, so, you know, um, something's happened or these several things have happened that have tried to kind of chip away at your ability to trust, but you know, how do you still move forward on that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And how do you still stay open? And, and that, that's part of the struggle. That's part of, probably part of the struggle with just relationships in general, you know what I mean? Right. It's, yeah. And it's life. And, and, um, but, you know, and that's part of, that's been part of my, you know, learning process and, and, you know, um, how I've tried, you know, to, to grow, you know, over the years. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, yes, that is one of the moments that I hold on to that, uh, as far as my career is concerned. And I try to, hopefully it kind of stays like, you know, in my, in the back of my mind a bit. Um, and maybe it should be more at the front of my mind, but, um, but, I want to say also like it's a reminder, but also hopefully like that's kind of in a way like who who I've become, you know, throughout the years so that it's it's not just that particular experience, but um, what's led me to that experience. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that yeah. kind of helps to um, shape helps to shape what I do in the future. Um, but yes, I, I hold on to that. And, um, and then I, yes, I'm trying to be open to different things. And I mean, I love music in general. So, you know, so, um, it's that and, um, and that, you know, I have different interests and, you know, I've in the past that I was growing up, I used my voice a lot. Um, and, and, you know, I don't do so much now, but it's not because I don't want to. And and I've actually been thinking about, you know, ways that I can start to use my voice more. And um, also, um, you know, bassoon is kind of like my chosen uh, musical voice. You know, it's kind of like what I've been doing, you know, leading up until this time and what I've been developing. Um, but I also want to, um, like... Uh, not kind of only, you know, like see, I mean, I have been conscious about choosing the bassoon as my musical voice. I've been conscious about that. Um, but I don't know if I want, I want to say that I don't want to limit myself because I don't think that it's limiting, but at the same time, uh, I just want to be able to potentially explore other things, but also use uh, in different ways. So even though um, 
like I may not have developed some other things to the way that I have developed the bassoon. I want to be able to use them in my quote unquote like message or what I'm trying to to say or um, or uh, almost like um, share with the world. I was going to say give to the world, but I don't. I don't think that's. <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate. I want to say share. You know, share with the world what I'm sharing. And what with is the world. that? What do you think that message is? Like, I mean, maybe you can't distill it to a nice like office pitch at this point or elevator yeah. pitch rather. <laughs> But right. like, what do you feel like are things that are deeply important to you that you as a teacher or you as just a person who is sharing with others that you wish other people, not that they knew or whatever, but just things that you felt mm-hmm. have enriched you and that you are trying to share with others so uh, that they can ex- possibly experience some of that as well? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I'm going to maybe I have some notes on that. <laughs> um, well, as. I mean, I go back to growth a lot. You know, growth is important for me and um, growing as a person and as a musician. And, you know, for a while, as far as my career is concerned, you know, I'm I feel like through life, I've always wanted to make sure I'm growing as a person. But um, but for a long time, I feel like it to some degree, I separated those two, you know, it's like growth as a you know, through my career and growth as a person are two separate things. But now I feel like it's more combined. Like, um, my growth as a person is intrinsically uh, related to my growth as a musician and, and vice versa, you know, like I just don't want to have one without the other. And I think, um, to, to really reach, I want to say like a deep level of, um, of musicianship in a way like I want to be connected to the universe as a whole you know and so um yeah so that's important to me and um also that like uh it's okay to not have all the answers you know and it's okay to um to still be to to still be growing and still developing and learning and I think sometimes as um as musicians kind of grow throughout their lifetime and throughout their learning they feel at some point where oh you know I'm too you know I'm I know too much you know what I mean yeah. to learn from right you know, right whatever just like and, a level uh, of humility basically yeah I think so yeah um I think that's I think that's really important and really good and yeah, yeah. And that you can learn from anything and everything, you know, like you can learn from, yeah, literally everything. Open your eyes in the morning and you're learning. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, taking a walk in nature and you're learning, you know, taking a walk through the city and is observing and you're learning, you know. Yeah, but that part's Im- that part's important though. Yeah. The observing part, right? That's the important. Yeah, yeah, part. yeah, yeah. And I feel like for yeah. me, I've learned over the course of time, and I would say I'm not great at it. The importance of <laughs> presence, basically, right? The importance yeah. of being where you are at the time that you're there and observing and seeing. I'm starting to understand things like art and things like photography are ways yeah. that you can learn to sort of retrain yourself to see the things you've seen the same all the time in a different way, right? 
Now, instead of looking at this landscape, I'm just saying, that's like a thing. I'm now thinking if I'm holding a camera, I'm thinking, well, what's the subject? Like, what's the important part? How would you display that? All of a sudden you're looking at it differently. And I totally agree, but I think the observation part of it is, is pretty critical that it's not overlooked in that process. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in every way. And um, like, I can give you a small example of, um, you know, when I was uh, teaching at at MTSU for for a year, I was in the I'm I'm um, I like to move and I like dance, you know, and I think um, movement is connected, you know, of course, right, musically, you know, to music and um, et cetera. And so um, I joined the um, dance theater program, and um, I was doing that nightly, you know, or not every night, but um, so certain nights of the week, and um, rehearsing with them and practicing, which um, which I felt helped, you know, in my relation to um, music, and even informed, you know, how I taught, you know, about rhythm and things like that, and. Um, and there was one student who, like, you know, of course, that's a big thing that you do in dance is observing, you know, your your uh, peers and observing the other dancers around you. And um, I was watching. There was one particular movement that we were doing. It was a floor movement. And um, and there was one specific dancer in the, in the theater. And I just thought, oh, I just love the way she's moving. And it was very fluid and super graceful. And, um, and I was like, that's what I would like to emulate, you know, like, I just felt like that, that's the way I want to move. So I was trying to, you know, emulate her and move like her. And then later on, um, you know, I think she was the one that said something about, you know, how graceful I was moving, you know, and how she loved how I moved on the floor. And I was like, I was copying you. <laughs> you know? like, I was just yeah. trying to move like you. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, it's that, you know, give and take and observing. And like you said, um, I feel like there's a certain amount of humility that you need, you know, in order to uh, open yourself up to that. And it doesn't always happen. You know, like I'm, I don't always, you know, um, I'm not always as, as, uh, open, I don't think as I should be, you know, as I can be, but it's a constant, it's a constant struggle. And I mean, struggle. Yeah. It's a constant. Yeah. You know, we're always just trying to be as much yeah. as possible. I think about it striving, you know, just like, striving, it's not about yeah. being perfect. It's about yeah. trying. Yeah. Uh, I, so yeah. for me, a good way, I think to not sum this up, right. But to really bring it yeah. into a perspective that I think is really tangible is I admire this about you actually quite a bit after speaking with you in this way that I think it just seems that you have a really great relationship with what your instrument represents in your life and what music represents in your life. And it doesn't seem like it defines you, right? We've talked about this before in identity, but not even so much that you just view it as one part of a holistic part of your life. And that you have had these opportunities that have happened and you've been open and you've received them, but you haven't necessarily said to yourself, I'm going to go after this. Quite the opposite. You felt, is this what I am supposed to be doing? And then opportunities still were able to come. And so I would love for you to speak for a second on what it looks like to develop a great relationship with your instrument. So it's not because so many of us, right, are anxiety ridden about what's going to happen in our career or am I good enough or 
like this has to take over my entire life for me to be able to justify that like I'm working hard enough. So if you have any mm-hmm. thoughts on just how you have developed and cultivated, it could be anything, it could be things we've already discussed, but how you've cultivated this idea that, or this posture rather, that's a way better way to think about it of, I just have, my, the instrument is a part of me and I have a great relationship with it and I love what I do, but there's lots of different things that I do. Do you have any thoughts on on that? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm not sure I can, you know, accumulate them right now, <laughs> but, but yeah. Just do your best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. You're so supportive. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's different for everybody, and I I try to have to try to think about where everybody is, you know, like at whatever point they are in their lives, you know, because everybody has a journey, right? But um, but I do I do have strong feelings about that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm, I'm not sure if um, if it's right for you know I, I just don't know if it's right for everybody, but. Um, but for me, you know, it, I had to really think about what is important, you know, in my life, what is my priority, you know, and, um, and I think this also goes back to being a freelancer, um, to some extent. Um, it wasn't important to me to have stability, you know, but I had to come, I had to realize that you know, after, you know, that was, that came after several experiences where I had stability, but I didn't feel, um, I wasn't at ease within it, you know? And, um, so I had to realize, okay, is it super important for me to have an academic job? You know, do I have to have an academic job? And, um, and then I realized why, I was thinking, okay, why do I, why do I feel like I need this job or, you know, um, and then do I have to have it? Am I, am I healthier without it, you know, at the moment, at the time being? Um, and, you know, ultimately what's important to me is my well-being number one to my well-being my my mental health my physical health um and and that to me was i realized that's number one you know like i have to decide you know what what is going to be the most important going forward what will give me potentially the most longevity you know like um and Yeah. So, um, so I had to really think about that and really decide, you know, where I wanted to put my efforts in the future. So, um, so it was basically about, and I didn't really necessarily feel like I was at a point of my like supreme health, you know, like where I was like, you know, firing on awesome cylinders, everything was, you know, golden. So I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I was encouraging that. So, so basically that becomes my priority. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I get caught up in, in projects or whatever. And, and I'm, 
overextending myself or, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, that can happen, you know, and, and for me, that's, it's, it's okay. You know, if that happens every once in a while, but like there also has to be like periods for rest. And sometimes those periods are longer, you know, <laughs> like depending on what you've been through, you know, leading up to that point. So, um, so really that's, that's the main thing for me. And then after that, I want to say like, what are you, or what am I, um, like, what is my purpose kind of like, and, and I'm just trying, you know, as much as possible to be in alignment with, with God basically so that whatever happens moving forward, even if I'm not sure, you know, where, where I'm stepping, you know, where my next step is going to be. I know that ultimately God is leading me. And so it's, you know, it's being aligned with God, being aligned with the universe, you know, um, and that's important to me. And, and, you know, this can be a s struggle sometimes, but just making sure, like, I'm, when I'm showing up, I'm showing up, you know, 100%, you know, or as close to that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also, I think you might have, you alluded to this, but, um, for me, it's like not being too hard on myself, you know, like, um, and understanding that where I am is where I am. And I was thinking like, you know, everybody's journeys are different, you know, and um, trying not to judge someone because of where they are in their particular journey, you know. Um, and I think because of, because of my my personal experience and my personal trajectory, I have felt like I, I am more attuned to that now, you know, that everybody is in a different place. And you, and also you can't always see where people are, you know, just by looking at them. You just, you can't always know, you know, what they're, I mean, you don't, you don't know ever what they're going through. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so, so just being um, aware of that. And um, I think that's, that's important to me. Um, and then, yeah. And, and being, I want to say, being comfortable with where you are and where you're going. And, um, and also like showing up, you know, um, but if something, if I, I, I don't know if I hate to say this or not, but like if something happens and something doesn't go the way you planned or, you know, like, uh, you have a, a bad moment, you know, like not, not beating yourself up for that, you know, it's like, okay, look at that moment. What happened in that moment? Why did it happen? learn your lesson, move on, Yeah, you know, and don't get stuck, you know, don't get stuck there. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think a lot of 
of what I would want to, you know, share. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I think there's only one part of that. I, it, everything you just said was beautiful in and of itself. There's one part I want to point out related to another thing you had said. So you said growth is important to you. And then you talked about longevity. I think it's just like a way we don't view ourselves as musicians. I think we got, I think we feel we have to get there as fast as possible. And then we just coast. So it's like, I get this job and then when I'm comfortable, that's what I do. And so I think there's a common thing of people thinking, well, if I don't get something by the time I'm 30, like I'm, it's not for me. And we don't really right. invest in ourselves now and then think about mm -hmm. what's going to allow me to do this for my entire career so I can begin mm -hmm. to build something rather than right. just think, how do I get there as fast as possible so I can prove to myself I'm good enough? Right. I've been there. Yes. I've totally been there. And I'm not there anymore. And like these practices of podcasting and potential other content, like that's a version of me thinking like longevity. You can see the progression for me of where I was, how I've come through, where I am now. It's a very honest representation, right? Yeah, it's great. And I think awesome. it's, I think it's very important that everything you just said is amazing, but that longevity part is so important. Like who are we going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now? And if growth is infused in that, like we can look forward to that rather than just saying, well, like I got to get there as fast as possible because like, I'll never get there then if I don't, you know, yeah. or that fear exactly. at least. Exactly. All right. Well, I, I think we should shift gears here uh, sure. into the heavy topic that we were, I was hoping to get your, your thoughts on. Um, you've mm -hmm. played with the Sphinx organization, right? And the Gateways yes. Music Festival, is that correct? Yes. And those are uh, orchestras or groups that are uh, all uh, minorities or people of color. And I was just curious what your experiences were playing in an orchestra like the Alabama Symphony, where you are the only black person and what it's like to play in a group of people that look like you and what's the vibe like, and then just your thoughts on representation uh, in orchestras or in the music field in general, and just like your experiences, you know, being a minority, if there's been discrimination you've experienced. That's a big sort of broad thing I'm asking to, to unpack here, but I think it would be important to get your experience and your voice. And I just want to listen to what you have to say. So um, if you just kind of want to unpack it in whatever way you feel is uh, correct for you, I'm happy to listen and just give you the space. Okay, sure. Um, thanks for, for opening that up. And um, at first, I would like to say that uh, I've had positive experiences, you know, in every ensemble that I've played in, every single ensemble. And um Specifically, because you play with Alabama, I'll speak that <laughs> I've enjoyed my time yeah. playing with Alabama Symphony very much, and um, and you you and Kathleen have been an awesome part of that. Okay, uh, I just want to say that oh, up thank front. You. Oh, thank you. And, yeah, um, but yeah, I've enjoyed uh, playing with Alabama a lot, and um, and again, I've had positive experiences everywhere. And in addition to that, um, there is, you know, definitely issues of racism and um, and uh, criticism in the music world, and it's and it's complicated to unpack that. Um, I have played with uh, Sphinx and um, Gateways, and <clears throat> and being um, being a being one of many, like. So the, the thing is that growing up, 
a lot of times, unless you're in like a segregated situation, you know, um, you're probably as a black or brown person, you're probably going to be like the only one or one of the only ones um, in the ensemble. So uh, automatically it's like you're standing out, you know, (laughs) automatically, like before you even walk in the room before you even unpack your instrument. And um, there are certain things that go along with that standing out. And um, some of it is because the people in the ensemble have never worked with someone who looked like you. Right. You know? And so um, for whatever reason, they don't kind of put you in the same category or think that, you know, you can be in the same category. Um, Part of it is, and I think this is actually all related, um, but, you know, systemic racism, you know, where throughout life, if you don't see, you know, certain people in certain roles or, you know, um, or if you kind of have an image of certain people all the time, um, where maybe you've seen a lot of black and brown people in handcuffs on television. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Or, um, you know, uh, um, commercials where people are feeding starving children in Africa. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Yeah, so you automatically kind of have uh, an idea consciously or subconsciously of how you view, you know, certain people. And, um, and so that informs, of course, uh, your experience within in, in an ensemble as well. And, you know, we've, we have, we have put certain stereotypes on certain people, like everybody has a, a, some sort of stereotype on them. And, um, I think this is a good time for us to to ask ourselves why those are there and to really 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 start to unpack them and um are they valid and you know if for some reason we do think they're valid because we see them all the time do we really want to perpetuate it you know what i mean it's just it's so complicated but um but so when I went and played with Sphinx and, and um, Gateways, it was like like life-changing, mm. literally life-changing. And everyone that I've talked to is, has said, who's played in those ensembles has said the same thing. It's like completely changes your perspective of what is possible, you know? And, um, and in so many different ways, what is possible in terms of there are other people that do this thing, you know, that play um, like I do and play, you know, this music like I do that's so supposed to be a representation of art as a whole, like in in the society in which I live, you know? Yeah. And and the ultimate extreme, you know, the the very top echelons of, of art, you know, this is this is classical music has been that and um and been supposed to it's been it's supposed to have given us that you know um so 
if if I'm able to play this, if I'm able to do this and do it well, then that says something, you know. Um, uh, and I mean that that in and of itself can be unpacked, you know, a ton as well. Right, you know? sure. But but um, to me, it's also um, okay. So that there's that and playing in those ensembles, and then um, there's you know being the only. And um, there are certain things that you experience as the only. And again, I'll say like some of those things are very positive. You can experience very positive things. But, um, you know, I'll say it's the racism is, is part of the very fabric of every black and brown person, you know, um, every experience. Um, for any black and brown person. Um, and sometimes it's on purpose and sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's a microaggression. Sometimes it's a macroaggression. Um, and the experiences are unfortunate, but they they are a part of systemic racism, like I was saying before, that's running rapid in the world. You know, it's not just our country. Um, and it tells us that systemic racism has told us that the, the quote-unquote white race which isn't actually really a thing you know what i mean right. <laughs> like, yeah. right white and black and but the but the white race it's told us is superior and um it's beginning to change today but the recent events that have been brought to light of course you know with the the um public killings and by and i think it's i mean the public killings are really awful but um i mean like you know awful but uh these recent events that have been brought to light um, prove that we have an incredible amount of work to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so public killings by, not just public and not by what we would deem as terrorists, which that kind of thing is something that you would expect would be done by a terrorist. It's so complicated, you know? Yeah, totally. But it was by, like, the law enforcement you know what i mean like i'm not even going to say the people who are who are hired to protect us that's law enforcement you know mm -hmm. and so you know our whole societal structure is or a lot of it is based on laws and like things that you're supposed to follow and it doesn't matter what er era we're in, we're in but it's like you know, the realization, I think we always think we're supposed to follow the law. You know, we're supposed to, the law is what's right. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be abide by the laws, law abiders. But, you know, civil, civil rights era, which, you know, I guess we're kind of still in, but we're in an, another uh, realm of that or uh, civil rights take two. But, um, but this, in the civil rights era, you know, that we know, like the 1960s and stuff, you know, there were laws that should not have existed. Right. True. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. So, so, you know, when we're, we just kind of have to dig really deep when we're thinking on that level, you know, it's like, is everything that, that we've come to know is right and the law are those things always right, correct. So, and if you think about that in, in 
other as areas of, of life, you know, then it changes everything, you know. And um, and I'll just also say that um, classical music is, and this is <laughs> this is a big statement, but classical music is the epitome of racism in a way, um, and it's it's the cultural colonial preservation of Western European um, art music, and at, at again at the very highest level of preservation, you know, yeah. like you can find an orchestra in how many cities and how many states across the country and they are funded and supported by donors and, you know, people with lots of money who was and not always people with lots of money, people who believe, you know, that this is important to preserve, you know, yeah, yeah, which is a fantastic and amazing thing that we want to preserve this thing. But then are we willing to potentially deconstruct it, you know, and then like rebuild it again? We have so much, like so many wonderful things in classical music. I sit in an orchestra and I'm playing the, you know, the war horses, you know, like Tchaikovsky, Mahler, Beethoven, you know what I mean? Beethoven, Mozart, those, oh my gosh, Haydn. I love, you know, like that experience. That's magical to me. And like one of the most amazing experiences I can ever have. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what does it what does it mean though you know what i mean like mm -hmm. if we really break it down and look you know at every aspect of the 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 pres what we're preserving you know yeah what do we want to what do we want to preserve um yeah i i'll just say a quote to martin luther king called um classical music the last bastion of elitism <laughs> Wow. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, I right? didn't know that quote. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, as, as a classical musician myself and, um, the experiences I've had and, um, and with, and in organizations with other musicians, you know, like, um, that, you know, are trying to be other musicians who are trying to be unified you know, like, but when you bring up the issue of race and that it becomes very complicated and oftentimes it's hard for other, other musicians. I, we're getting better at it, but it's often been hard for other musicians to, to see uh, black and brown musicians as equal, mm -hmm. you know, and as worthy of you know being a part of of you know a, a professional ensemble or it's very interesting um but yeah i don't is does that i i kind of, i have no agenda you know i just thought i'd just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no i just yeah. thought i'd let you I, one thing i think is interesting about what you said is 
it's like an amount of tradition, right? It's like, we're just like preserving tradition. Like the art form of itself is great, but we're preserving like everything about it. Like nothing about the orchestra has evolved since it first was like a thing that people were writing for. So we're still like playing in tuxes. It's like, we're still showing up at like eight o'clock, right? Or whatever time. And we're playing the same pieces that we think people want to hear. So they'll pay the bills and that kind of stuff. And there's no, I feel like it's such a huge institution to, because like, from the perspective of people who are in the institution, like if we if we change things up and we're like, we're gonna introduce this and we're gonna introduce this and we're gonna introduce this. And then all of a sudden, people who are so used to the tradition of what an orchestra is, starts to see something different than the fear, right? Cause it's gonna be fear-based of like, well, what if they don't, what if they don't like it? What if they mm -hmm. stop paying, right? And then all of a sudden we like mm -hmm. lose our salaries or something. I mean, I feel like it's a slippery slope, but it's, exactly. a, it's like a logical, like we can see that being a thing. And so mm -hmm. I feel like taking some sort of a risk to include, and you're speaking specifically about like sort of representation within the ensemble, but obviously the conversation mm -hmm. extends to composers and like what works are being played and just, you know, being more adventurous mm -hmm. in the programming. That's kind of what I'm speaking more to. Uh, I think there is an amount in that particular way, a risk, you know, and it's like we can either live in fear of like, well, what if people don't like accept this break from traditional whatever? Mm -hmm. And or we can try to like say, you know what, like this is important to us. And I, I don't know the right solution. Right. Because I don't know what the numbers are. And like, I don't I just think it's worth having the conversation, basically. And mm -hmm. I think that's like what a lot of a lot of. What it seems like happening in the world right now is nobody's having any conversations. Everybody's mm -hmm. telling each other what they think. And then the other person mm -hmm. is like, well, I don't think you heard me well enough because you disagree mm -hmm. with me. Let me explain my point of view again. And then mm -hmm. I'll just continue to tell you my point of view until you go, oh, now I understand you. I have changed my mind. And mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm just trying to provide a space where you can just talk and people have to listen because yeah. they're listening to my podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Like not a, not like captivity, but like this is a, it's like important to me to to use my platform in this way to try to uplift voices of people that look different than me, so I can learn and hopefully we all can learn. Um, yeah. And I appreciate you being willing to open up and share and be vulnerable. I, I'm encouraged. I think it's so cool to hear that it was life changing for you. I mean, it's yeah. something I play in a group of people that look like me. And it's a job, right? For you to play in a group of people that look like you is life changing. Like that gives me pause, you know? Yeah. I think it should give me pause. So uh, I appreciate you giving me your perspective and being willing to open up about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree. I think um, we need to, you know, I don't know if, if the organizations are going to be willing to do, to do the work. I think because of what's happened recently, a lot of organizations have made statements, you know, like, we we've decided to we're going to bring in more um, composers of color. We're going to you know do this and do that um, and change programming and you know um, which I think is is great. You know if if that happens, it's great. It's it's so hard because we've been doing something different. You know like for so long, and you know like you said, I mean like are people going to continue to um, uh, donate, you know, are people, are donors going to continue to be invested if, if they're not only doing the war horses? Right. Um, you know, t people feel very differently about contemporary music. We, um, we know, you know, people feel differently about um, sometimes black and brown people. Um, 
I've, I have seen very positive, um, results, you know, from, and, and I've spoken with, you know, administrators and stuff who have been, um, very, very open, you know, sometimes it's, um, it's that they, they're open, but, you know, like maybe part of their board isn't, you know what I mean? Or, or something. So it's, it's definitely going to be, uh, yeah, on a struggle, you know, to navigate that, you know, in, in some cases much more than others. Um, but hopefully, you know, it will get to that point. I think also, like you see, uh, representing representation on stage, you know, will make a big difference in that too. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of me feeling, you know, feeling different when I played with, um, you know, full, a full black and brown orchestra versus, you know, being the only one in, in a white orchestra. Um, I, I just never, you know, like growing up, I hardly ever saw that, you know, I never saw it, right. you know, really. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine yourself in a position if you don't see your, if you've never seen it, you know, um, yeah. think Barack Obama becomes president, you know, and all of a sudden, like, black and brown boys think, you know, like, what? You know? Yeah, I think it's so true. It's like, I think, honestly, I mean, maybe, hopefully this makes sense. I think it does both things. It's kind of a, it's a beautiful thing. It's an unfortunate thing. Cause I think when Barack Obama comes president, now people say, now, you know, young brown and black boys, like you're saying, say, I can become president. Like that's a possibility. But then I also think there's a contingent of people that say, well, clearly racism doesn't exist anymore because we have a black president. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on something like talking about how there's possible racism in classical music, but Anthony McGill, right? But like Wynton Marsalis, (laughs) right? Like these like people who have been around a long time and they occupy huge positions in their, um, in their uh, in the field, I, I, I mean, I wonder if people look at that and say, "Well, clearly, I think most people can recognize that that's not a necessarily definitive statement that racism doesn't exist." But I wonder if there are people out there who think, "Well, obviously, it's like a it's like a work based thing." Like Anthony McGill worked really hard; he got what he got. But as mm-hmm. we, so I don't know if you have thoughts on that or if you just want to leave that alone. It's up to you. I mean, I, I mean, I kind of want to both. <laughs> I thought I'd leave it alone. But, um, you know, and that's also complicated, too. But, you know, you're right. There's going to be people who are going to be like, um, you know, well, he did it. You know, so why is there an issue? Or, you know, so-and-so is playing. Why is there an issue? Um, I think in a lot of ways, and sometimes you have to look at statistics, you know, like, but how many um, are there? You know, actually... And also, um, you know, if you've talked to Anthony McGill, I'm sure, you know, um, he's had lots of experiences with racism, you know, um, and he's had to navigate that just like, you know, Barack Obama, you know, has, I'm sure had lots sure, of experiences of with, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but it's just, um, Oh gosh, so complicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't have to. Everything is so complicated. Yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to like end racism on this particular podcast, right? I'm just like, <laughs> mostly, like I said, it's just a space for you to be able to speak without someone telling you that you're wrong, possibly, you know? Yeah. So I just wanted to yeah. be able to provide that because it's important to me. Because I said in, in Martin's episode, I basically said I, 
George Floyd was not the first time there have been like horrible killings, you know, public killings yeah. by the police. And in the previous right. times that it's happened, I see it and I go, that's horrible. And then I, mm-hmm. I can say, I can say to myself, that's over there though. Like that, mm-hmm. like that, I don't act, I can choose whether or not I want to engage with that. Or I can say, man, that's crazy, but that's over there. I don't have to deal with that. And I feel mm-hmm. bad about that. I, I have like, I would like to repent <laughs> of that kind of, <laughs> it, just like ignorant thinking and not realizing that's just privilege that I have. And it doesn't mean that I have to feel bad that I have this privilege. It does mean that I have a responsibility to do something with the privilege that I have. I believe that at least. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. this is my one way I'm trying to um, use that privilege for good uh, in mm-hmm. whatever way I can. And so um, I, I, I said that to him just to give this idea that, and hopefully it shows what a conversation can look like, you know, what yeah. it looks like for someone who's white to just like listen to someone else's who doesn't look like them experiences and not to just, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm you know, I, I shouldn't be all about me oh. or anything like that, but I think it's important for <laughs> Because I've felt, I mean, if we're getting super honest about this, I have felt mm-hmm. that if I, like when horrible things happen, if I reach out to someone like you when um, like a horrible killing or whatever, I, I, ha- I play like a mind game with myself, right? Of, well, if I reach mm-hmm. out to someone that I don't talk to that often and I'm going to say, I'm really mm-hmm. sorry, like almost like, I mean, it's not tokenism, but I'm almost worried about like, I just have to do this to clear my conscience, you know, that mm-hmm. this person who... Uh, is black would feel that I'm not, I don't condone that. But that that's actually like the point, right? That's like actually the point is that they there's support and, and like people are acknowledging that like, this is not okay. I don't know if I can fix it, but I do acknowledge it's not okay. But I'll like play a mind game with myself and talk myself out of reaching out and supporting my friends, even acquaintances that are minorities because it's like, I'm making it about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm, yeah. I'm trying to be better. I think that's awesome. And, you know, that's all any of us can really do, you know, try to be better. That's all any of us can do. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, I was really appreciative when, when you reached out to me. And um, I think in the long run, even if you feel bad about doing something, if you feel like you should do it, you should probably do it you know what I mean like there have been times where I felt like um like there have been times when I really wanted to do this thing you know I just felt like I wanted to do something whatever it is for somebody and um but you know something in my head would say but what if they what if they think it's stupid or what if they're like why is she you know like reaching out like this or what if what if what if what if what if what if you know like whatever yeah And, um, and so maybe I don't do that thing, you know? And then afterwards, I, often I realized I should have done that thing. I should have just gone ahead and done that thing, you know, but just worried, you know, maybe I haven't talked to somebody in a really long time, you know, or something like that. But really it's all, it's, if there's something that, you know, you feel is, is a step forward or you feel like is a step, a step of kindness, you know, towards someone, I feel like never back away from that. Now, you know, if you have to, I feel like you have to think about, you know, uh, other aspects of it and just make sure, you know, (laughs) like, um, you know, um, make sure that you are 
you know, conscious of the whole situation. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? You know, <laughs> so, like I said, I think, but, like um, I said, it's yeah. not to interrupt, but I, I actually think it yeah. does for me boil down to just why are you doing it? Like, are yeah, you doing yeah. it because like you want to make sure that like you're clearing your conscience or do you genuinely right. care about the suffering this person might be experiencing at this moment? And I think right. like it's the same action, but like right. we'll come across two different ways, even if you say the same words, you know? Right. Yeah. And part, part of what I'm thinking about in terms of like an act of kindness is just make sure like you're not in a dark alley and like somebody's walking <laughs> by see. and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> or something, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, I, I agree with that too. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I think like, even if, you know, b- before you're, you're, you say, oh, that's, I was just doing it because I, you know, because I was thinking about myself and I'm not going to do it, you know, like say, you know, I'm okay. I was going to do it because I'm thinking about myself, but why would it still be good to do this thing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, like move forward from there and then you can maybe you can get to the point where you do it because, you know, you've, you realize that it ultimately it is the right thing to do and you've decided to, to remove that aspect of yourself, you know, from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Absolutely. but, um, yeah. Um, uh, and I, you know, I have to say personally, um, it's, it has been hurtful, you know, during this situation. So like, and you know, of, of course it's my responsibility also to reach out to people too, as well, you know, and to, and to talk to friends and, and um, especially like when COVID started, you know, I was like, okay, like, let me try to like reach out to, to people, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and stay connected. Um, and I w- wasn't always great at that. Um, but also, you know, like, when when um, George Floyd happened and um, and again you know we say it George Floyd but like it's more than yeah. that of course it's you know um, but um, when you know the world exploded it was like um, you know if I heard from someone and they didn't mention it that was like whoa you know what I mean yeah, like. Yeah. It was like, do they know what's happening in the world? You know, do they know, like, what this means? And I think, too, a lot of... And sometimes we do this to ourselves, but a lot of times, like, something like that will happen in the world, and um, we don't realize, like, the sort of trauma that it's that it's actually putting on us, you know? Like, it, like watching, watching a person you know, get killed on live, you know, on national television, watching by law enforcement, watching people, watching other law enforcement officers because you think someone's going to do something, someone's going to do something, you know, watching other law enforcement officers standing there like eight minutes and just, and watching someone lost their life, you know, like, on like and it was publicized you could watch the entire thing and then other people bystanders were standing saying no 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 this is wrong this is wrong while they taped it do you know how traumatic that is yeah <laughs> and it's traumatic for black and brown people but it's also traumatic for it's i mean i think sometimes 
it's hard to realize it too, but it's traumatic for everybody. And, and I think, of course, that's why, you know, what's happening is happening. Like the whole world exploded, you know? Um, <laughs> I'm, I think it's often, and this is kind of where I think partially we are right now, you know, and we didn't see Rihanna Taylor die, you know, it happened around the same time, but like, you could just imagine, right. you know what I mean? And, you know, the fact that she was an EMT was, like, heightened it, you know, because that's what the kind of, that's what we do, you know, like, oh, she had this status, so that makes her more, you know what I mean, more important or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but you know, that that's affecting as well, that someone can just come into your own home, you know, your home, um, a law enforcement again, you know, so, you know, these are things that, that I think we don't realize are chipping, chipping away at us psychologically and, and, you know, spiritually and physically even like they're, they're taking the toll on us and we don't really understand it. But now it's like, you know, we look at social media and stuff like that and stuff isn't trending and stuff, you know what I mean? And, you know, even myself, you know, I was like scrolling through my social media, looking at what I'm posting now versus like what I was posting before. And, you know, social media, of course, isn't an indicator, you know, of everything, of course. But um, but in terms of what what how I was reacting, you know, it's like it's like I I think it was last night or the other night I was like looking through and I was like, oh, I need to post something about, you know, Rihanna Taylor again or so, you know what I mean? Right, or something yeah. or Elijah McClain, you know, and um and not just post, but like, you know, what am I doing? And you know about it, and um, and you know, it's a it's a struggle, I think, for for a lot for myself, you know, for a lot of people. Um, but it's like, okay, where where are we going to go from here? And it's so easy to just be like, for you know, white people with privilege, but for for black and brown people, it's I'm going to tell you, it's very easy to live with our trauma. You know, I mean, easy, quote unquote, you know, we're just like, quote unquote, coasting. You know what I yeah. mean? It's just like, yeah, day to day. It's like, yeah, this is the this is the realities of the world. And sometimes, you know, I think in the past we weren't totally aware of it. You know, we knew something was wrong. But, you know, it's like watching watching people get arrested all the time on the street. You know, it's like, I, you know, I've seen somebody multiple times get arrested outside my house. You know, yeah. it's like growing up. It's like, you know, we, we're, it's a shock and, you know, it's like, why is this happening? But we tell ourselves something and then whatever, you know, but now it's like, wait, you know, <laughs> like there's this many black and brown people in, in, um, in prisons and, and they've, and most of them have gone in because of dealing weed and now weed, and some of them are still in prison and now weed is legal. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Right. Wait. Wait, <laughs> you know, and and um, you know, it's it's just very it's a very complicated you know existence, and um, and I think it's very easy for us to just kind of go back to like living our lives, you know. It's yeah, like, that's what I. Okay. That's another thing. Another reason yeah. why I'm trying to have this conversation is one of my great frustrations yeah. about social media is. Everybody mm -hmm. posts a black picture for their profile picture or, yeah. you know, like a rainbow or an equal sign or whatever it ends up being. Mm -hmm. And then like a week later, like pictures of their kids swimming in a pool, you know, 
And like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's awesome for their yeah. lives, but it's like yeah. w- for like one week, it got attention mm-hmm. from people. And now we're yeah. back to our real <laughs> lives, but it's still happening. Like people are still struggling. Right. People are still dealing. So that's one thing I hope to do right. is to continually like have the conversation so that we don't necessarily, yeah. not that we have to beat anybody over the head with this thing that yeah. is, like you said, is complicated, but rather it's mm-hmm. important to at least just be continuing to talk about it and remembering that for people like me, I'm not, af- mm-hmm. I, I'm not afraid of a cop to come into my house, you know, and like to shoot me. Like, yeah. And I'm not, maybe it could happen, but I don't think it's yeah. as much of a real reality for me as it is for minorities. And right. like that give, that should give everybody pause. It shouldn't be like, a, oh, it's not real because I don't experience it. It right. should be like, all right, well, maybe we just have different life experiences and maybe I should start to understand what other people have experienced and maybe that will mm-hmm. give me like you said broadening the perspectives you're not like you don't have the blinders on mm-hmm. you talked about it in your career mm-hmm. but we're seeing how it can mm-hmm. affect all aspects of our lives to broaden our perspectives yeah. and to learn to understand other people other you know ways of life stuff like that so i appreciate yeah. you sharing so we can learn from you oh <laughs> I appreciate you giving me giving me a platform to share. Sure, I mean it's uh, you're awesome, Maya. I really appreciate your friendship. Um, if people yes, are um, listening to this episode and they're like, Maya is amazing, I got to tell her how amazing she is. <laughs> is there any way that they can get a hold of you to tell you that, or to ask you questions, or any kind of thing like that? Oh, sure. That would be very nice. <laughs> um, uh, so I have. Uh, social media platforms. Um, I have uh, Maya Stone Music Studio, both on Facebook and um, Instagram. And I'm happy for people to um, visit me there to to follow me and, you know, send likes and stuff. And um, and also they can email me at mayastonemusicstudio at gmail.com. Um, and I'm, I welcome um uh, emails and correspondences. Um, I'm, I'm very curious if there's something that people would like to see more, you know, on my, on my social media posts, uh, I would love to know. Um, I can't, you know, promise to deliver it, but, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's something I would definitely consider. And, um, yeah. And I'm teaching privately, even, um, online. So if there's are people who are interested in, in lessons online, um, I'm happy to, to accommodate, uh, or, um, you know, help them look into that. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah. So yeah. Thanks so much of Ryan, course. for well, doing this and for bringing me in. If you were, yeah. If, if for any reason you got to get in touch with Maya, uh, I will make sure I link those in the show notes and the blog posts that are right for this. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at that's not spit.com. And then also at That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate you leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, That would be pretty helpful. And then also don't forget to share this on social media. That can help other people find it as well. Once again, Maya, I would like to thank you for uh, speaking with me and giving me your time. This has been really awesome. Thank you, Ryan. You're awesome. Your podcast is awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, A few more here. Brandon Yoakum. I want to thank Brandon for his work on mastering this episode. And then finally, Maya and I would like to thank both or all of you for listening to this episode. Remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing. 
and we'll see you next time. 